When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is a, a passage about God hearing his people, right? And yet, when is he praying, when is Solomon praying that God would hear them? Every single one of these is when they are in need, right? They're facing some sort of difficulty, some sort of trial, some sort of problem. But it's not just generic like that, is it? It is some sort of sin. So what this passage is about, underlying God hearing his people when we pray to him, is God's discipline. God's discipline on his people for their sins. And so right there in the beginning, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, and then they pray to you, hear them, right? But I skipped something. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. Because they have sinned against you. So why in this case that Solomon is speaking of, why are God's people defeated by their enemies? Kids, why are the people of Israel defeated? Yeah, zeal. Because they sinned against God. That's right. And so what would you call it if we sin against God and then he lets bad things happen to us? Yeah. Discipline, that's right. This is God's discipline on his people, isn't it? We sin against him. 
and then we're defeated by our enemies. Now today we don't have a lot of physical enemies, right? We don't think of being at war as a people. We don't think of being defeated by our enemies and, and think of it the same way, at least, that the Israelites did. In the case of the Israelites, it was a very physical, real fight. Armies coming together, clashing, people dying, right? But in our case, I don't think anybody in here is in the military. And uh, I'm not aware right now of anybody even being uh, assaulted recently. Okay, so the enemies are missing in our lives, right? Well, yes and also no. Does it feel like there is no conflict in your life? No, there is conflict in our lives, isn't there? There is conflict even with regard to the issue of sin. We face our own sin and we find a conflict within ourselves. We find that even when we begin to make progress in sanctification and fighting against sin, that Satan will intervene. And so we will face strong temptation and realize we're fighting an enemy that is not flesh and blood, but is principalities and powers and world forces of this present darkness. And we realize there's a fight. There's a conflict. I think more of us are commonly thinking about conflict, though, apart from that spiritual context and thinking about it more with regard to a cultural war. You've heard of the culture wars. It implies that there's some kind of fight going on, right? Some sort of conflict. Who is going to be in charge of this country? What is the fight going to be like? Who is going to lead? And so we put up certain men. They're going to be a grand strategist. You know, they're going to be able to effectively rally the people. This, this one's going to be able to pierce very effectively through the armor and through the baloney of the arguments, right? And, and, and so we've got our warriors and we've got a fight. It's in that very context that I worry that we lose track of God's discipline in this context. We lose track of the fact that the people of God have over and over and over again, down through the ages, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, been in conflict with the enemies of God and relied entirely on their own strength rather than turning to him, refusing to recognize that the reason they're being defeated is because God is disciplining them. And so instead they say, well, we're the people of God. We have good on our side. We recognize morality. We recognize immorality. We know right from wrong. 
How could God ever be against us? But here, right at the beginning of this passage, because they have sinned against you. If they're defeated by their enemy because they have sinned against you, then it doesn't matter what in the world you think or the people you read or listen to or watch think is the reason for defeat. They can say it's because of the amazing strategy of the enemy or they can talk about how ridiculously dumb your strategy is and just say, you know, conservatives are terrible at winning. They're so dumb in their strategies. Why don't they care enough to actually adopt a decent strategy that will actually win? And it's like, what? God has nothing to do with this? When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Now, do you notice what's implicit there at the end of that verse about the land and the people? Solomon just assumes something there. He makes it explicit later on. But here at the beginning, he's talking about them being defeated by their enemies, and he talks about them not being in the land. They've lost the land. Solomon's prayer is that God would bring them back to the land which he gave to their fathers. He just assumes when the people turn away from God, when they sin, they get defeated by their enemies, they lose the land. Now, you can assume that because that was the fight. The fight at that time was the land, right? The fight was whether they were going to have the land or whether the Canaanites were going to have the land, the Hittites, the Jebusites, right? That was the fight. David had conquered the enemies, pushed them out of the land, but the people, the enemies can come back right in, right? All through the period of the judges prior to the kings, the people would have the land, and then they would not have the land. Somebody else would have the land. And this wasn't just a historical thing that was understood and a practical thing of like, either we have control of the land or we don't have control of the land, and that's the fight. It was a matter of God's own word. Through Moses, when they were coming into the land, the people were told, this is what will happen. You will have the land. You'll become rich and fat and content. You'll turn away from the Lord, and then the Lord will discipline you and take you out of the land so that you will remember him and return to him. And so God disciplines his people, and we think, well, how depressing is that? And I say, no! Have we forgotten Hebrews 12 already? God disciplines his people because he loves them. Would you rather that he simply left them in the land, left them rich, left them fat, left them content, 
left them in their sin? No. God disciplines his people because he loves them and he shakes them out of their false peace. He shakes them out of trusting in their money, trusting in their land, trusting in their walls, trusting in their swords, trusting in their jobs, in their own strength. God disciplines his people, and he disciplines them because he loves them. Now, Solomon goes through example after example here. He doesn't go through examples of what their sins are. He goes through examples of the ways that God disciplines. Some of us parents need to learn new ways to discipline. God is creative in his discipline, isn't he? Not just one method. Plenty of sin. But Solomon, eh, that's not his focus. Defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. Heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Famine, pestilence, blight, mildew. Okay, what's famine, kids? Yeah, Judah. No food, that's right. What is pestilence? The harder one. Yeah, oh, Liam, go ahead. Bugs that infest everywhere. Uh, um, yeah, sort of. Can I get a can I get a correction? <laughs> yeah, pests. Well, that's what we think of when we think of pestilence, right? Pestilence actually has a uh, a broader meaning than that. Um, it does have to do with pests. But pestilence is when uh, you think of a bacterial or a viral pest spreading. So people are dying because of disease. Disease can be spread by rats. We, we know this. And also by bugs. So it's a pestilence. You can, you can try to remember what it means better by thinking from rats to the bubonic plague. Okay? How about blight? Does anybody know what blight is? Have you ever had a vegetable garden? What's blight? Yeah, weird white stuff that can grow on your vegetables. It get all over your tomato leaves, and then what happens to the tomatoes? Judah? They're bad. They're gross. They don't grow, or they grow all misshapen, and then they rot, and it's blech. Blight, a blight on the land is bad, isn't it? How about mildew? Have any of you ever had uh, mildew in your car? Ugh. Maybe in a basement? 
mildew is a yucky smell, but it's more than that. It's something growing that you can't see that's, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, it's infecting everything. Making it rot. Making it all gross. And locust and grasshopper, you guys know what those are, right? Last year, I think it was, there was a locust swarm over a substantial portion of sub-Saharan Africa. What happens when there's a locust swarm? Yeah. They eat up all the crops. It's not just disgusting because there's bugs everywhere. It's actually a big problem, right? You don't have anything to eat after they come through. And so that was the concern, particularly in nations that are already unstable, which many in sub-Saharan Africa are. Many, many, many of the people in Ethiopia, for example, are simply subsistence farmers. What they grow is what they eat. That's how they live. That's how they survive. They don't have money to go buy food. They grow their food. And if it doesn't grow, they don't eat. If it does grow and then locusts come and eat all of it, they have nothing to eat. So all of these are examples of the ways that God disciplines his people because he loves them. Did I go through the whole list? Oh, I missed. If their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities. What does it mean for a city to be besieged? Come on, someone who hasn't, all of you have already answered. Somebody who, who hasn't answered. Anybody? For, for a city to be besieged, what does that mean? Titus is looking right at me, waiting to find out. <laughs> All right, fine, Zeal. That's right. They surround the city. Your enemies surround the city. And they won't let anybody in or out, and therefore no food can get in or out. And if you run out of food in the city... And you start dying, don't you? Okay, so all of these things are just a list of the various ways that God disciplines his people. And they're all bad things, aren't they? They're all things we don't want to have happen to us. God disciplines nations. And so you'll see it, you'll see a nation totter and fall. We've seen great nations totter and fall under the weight of God's hand simply saying, and now you're done. Now you're done. Solomon speaks this way, speaks of God's discipline being on entire nations. He speaks of your people Israel as, as an entire group. 
Your people Israel are defeated before an enemy. Or when there is no rain. How did I miss that? There is no rain. There is no rain, there is no food. Everybody suffers. We see that later on. You remember when Elijah prays that there will be no rain? God's people are disciplined, aren't they? There's no rain. No rain. No rain. Every day. No rain. Still no rain. Pretty soon the creeks start drying up. Then the ponds. Now they're having to take their cattle far away trying to find water. And then the food, the bales of hay start running out. No rain. No rain. No rain. People start to hate that guy who prayed that there would be no rain. But what are they supposed to do? Solomon tells them right here, right? If there's no rain because they've sinned against God, they are to pray to the Lord and he will hear in heaven. He will hear. He'll hear their prayer. God doesn't just discipline whole nations, though, does he? God also disciplines individuals. Much smaller groups of people Towns, villages, families, and just one person. Have your parents ever dealt with all of you children at once? Disciplined everybody? Just... No, there is badness in the home. Everybody will suffer now. Suffer under the discipline of my hand. I knew a family that had five kids. And I remember hearing a day came. I think it was because of the way they were talking to their mother, all of them, that the father took them out onto the porch and made them watch as he cut a paddle and then used it on every one of them, one by one. Does that sound horrible? Does that sound beyond the pale? Does it sound unstable, emotionally or physically abusive? Will we speak that way of God? We see him dealing with entire nations. We also see him, though, dealing with individuals. Verses 37 through 39 give a number of those things that we talked about, what they were. You know, you can have blight on one field. Mildew on one crop, gathered by one person. Sickness 
can be across a nation or it can be in one home or one person. And this is why Solomon then moves to not just speaking of them, your people as a whole, He says, verse 38, each, when they, when they turn and they pray to God, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. You see how it's talking about an individual there? If any, any individual, knowing the affliction, knowing the pain, knowing the suffering that he's undergoing in his own heart, and then God, then, then Solomon says about God, <laughs> whose heart you know. He's talking about men and God knowing their own hearts in this disciplinary process. Do you know your own heart? God certainly does know your heart. Verse 38, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man, the individual, or by all your people Israel, the whole group, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, which as we've seen in previous sermons is to say towards God. This was his dwelling place, right? If they turn towards God. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each, each, according to all his ways. You see, one person too, receiving God's discipline, receiving his mercy. Whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God knows our hearts. We have sinned against God. We come to the end of this little passage within Solomon's prayer. He's constantly reminding the people to pray toward God. He's also praying, God, hear them when they remember you, when they turn to you, when they return to you. Verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. God disciplines us because of our sins so that we may fear him. So that we may fear him. so that we may fear him and that we may live in the land. Fearing God means receiving his blessing rather than his discipline. If the people fear God, they receive his blessings. If the people don't fear God, they receive his discipline so that they may fear him so that they may receive the blessing again. 
Now, isn't it good news that God disciplines his people? And you think, well, but I don't, I don't like fearing. I don't want to fear God. I just want to love him. How can you not love a God who loves you enough to discipline you? Love and fear aren't contrary in this way. We must turn to him. We must fear him. Turning to him means repentance, doesn't it? Turning to him means turning away from what we had been turned towards. Turning to him means turning away from the sins that we've been given ourselves to that God is disciplining us for. Turning to him means no longer being focused on ourselves, our own idols, whatever the sins might be. He knows our hearts. And this is part of what it means for us to uh, pray to him. To turn to him in prayer is to recognize what is in our hearts. When you recognize what is in your heart, and you realize this is contrary to God's law. This is contrary to his word. This is fighting against him. You recognize it in your heart. And you say, I will turn back to God. I will turn away from my sin. I will turn to him and call out to him. He knows what's in your heart. And what a terrifying thing that is. You can't say God knows what's in your heart without being, it being a reminder that God will judge the living and the dead. As a matter of fact, Solomon prays for that judgment. He says, render, verse 39, to each according to all his ways. Whose heart you know. Not just what you've done with your hands, not just what you've said with your mouth, not just the actions that you have performed, but your very heart that drives those things, he knows. All of you are here at church this morning. Going to church is a good thing, right? What's in your heart? What's in your heart about going to church? You see, why I'm, you see why I'm driving? He knows what's in our heart home. Because there are millions and millions of people on this earth who do good things, right? I've often heard... Uh, Mormons described as very good people. But what's in their heart? Have they turned in faith to God? We must turn to him. And if we refuse to turn to him, in spite of his discipline, what will happen? We will die. 
All of those disciplines, you see, they're physical death at the end, aren't they? In the end, it's physical death. And so what we have all through the Old Testament is many examples in this life here and now that point to spiritual realities that are deeper and bigger. And so, not less than physical death, but more than physical death. Physical death and then spiritual death are what are at stake when we face this question of turning to him or not. Turning to him means life, eternal life. Refusing to turn to him means death, both in this life and in the life to come. Judgment. He knows what's in our hearts. He will judge. And if we refuse, we die. Let me give you an example from earlier in the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. Listen to this story about the people of Israel before they've received the land. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. Have you kids ever been impatient on a journey? Are we there yet? When are we going to be there? Tommy won't stop touching me. You ever get impatient because of a journey? How about if you were walking the whole way to Wisconsin? I think I'd get impatient. The people became impatient. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Why do you torture me by driving on? And we loathe this miserable food. All that's left are these stupid pretzels. You guys get impatient with the journey and think your parents are intent on tormenting you, right? And so you begin to talk bad about your parents. Why won't he stop? And your mom is tempted to join in, right? Well, because he's stubborn. She might not say it, but she might be thinking it. And this is what's going on with God's people. It's very... It's very it's very physical, isn't it? It's like we question those who lead us. They're doing it wrong. Has there ever been a leader who hasn't been doing it wrong? Moses was doing it wrong constantly, wasn't he? The people thought. Okay. We loathe this miserable food. And so God disciplines them. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Remember that the next time you're in a car trip. Before you start complaining, think snakes in the van. I don't want to be disciplined. 
So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses, you got to love Moses, right? The people, the people are just constantly miserable to him. But he does what they ask. He, he intercedes. Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Put it up on a pole, high. A standard is raised up in battle so that everybody can see. Okay? Set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. It's beautiful, right? God disciplines his people. They sin against him, but he loves them. Moses loves them. He intercedes. God says, okay, here. Here is a way of salvation. Look to the bronze serpent up on the pole and you'll be healed. Do you think there's any people who didn't look? Oh, I know there were people who didn't look. What kind of stupid solution is that? I can keep from getting bit anyway. It probably wasn't really a bite. I can find some sort of medicine that'll help it. All the different ways that we think about how it's better for us not to turn to God, just to refuse to pray to Him. But ultimately, it's life and death. You have to be an idiot not to look at the snake. Only an utter and complete fool refuses to turn to God and say, God, save me. To pray to him, to look to his temple and say, I have sinned, forgive me. Only one who is intent on dying refuses And why would we be intent on dying? Our pride keeps us from turning to God, doesn't it? Stupid Moses telling us what to do again. Well, I'm not going to do it. I don't care if I die. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of people telling me what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I'll decide for myself whether I look at the stupid snake or not. Moses, who thinks he's better than everybody else. Is it because of who told you? Or is it just because you were told what to do? We don't like being told what to do, do we? Turn to God. God's disciplining you. Turn to God. That's the command. It's the requirement. It's the only way. Turn to God. He will heal you. What is wrong with that solution? It's free. It's perfect. It's complete. It's beautiful. Turn around. Look to God. And there's life.
It's wonderful. The only other option is death. And this is why God's people are described as stiff-necked. Have you ever tried to get a child to look at you when you're talking to them? I've tried this recently with Peter. Grab the top of his head. Peter. Peter. I don't see you. I don't hear you. I don't feel you. I don't notice you. Nope. This toy. His neck is stiff, isn't it? Is your neck ever stiff? God is turning you towards himself. Just look at the snake. Your whole body's getting turned with your neck because you're trying to keep your neck from turning. Stiff-necked man that you are. So stubborn you'd rather die. What is the snake? Jesus said that he was the snake. Just as the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Here's what he says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and bitten by snakes, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But no, we don't want it. We want it our own way. We want it on our own terms. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get it for myself. I don't need to turn to God first. And Solomon says, if they pray to you, if they turn, if they turn, then here in heaven. And you notice what he didn't pray? He didn't pray if they don't turn, if they refuse to listen to you, if they don't heed your discipline, if they're stiff-necked, then forgive them anyway. Solomon didn't pray that. And do you know why Solomon didn't pray that? Because he knew God wouldn't do that. Solomon is praying according to God's command, according to God's will, according to God's word. Jesus' burden is light. You look at the snake, you live. Turn to Jesus and live. That's it. Pray to him and ask him to save you from your sins and you will live. Why won't you do it? Do it. If you refuse, the consequences will be death and hell. And why don't we do it? It really is pride in the end, isn't it? I just don't like people telling me what to do. I know I should. I know I could. I know it would be easy. I know I should. Did I already say that? Yeah, I should. It would be good. I don't really feel like it. I just can't quite 
get up the just that the feels to do it, you know, the energy, the I'm, I'm gonna go play Nintendo for now instead of praying. I'll probably get around to praying later, maybe, if I ever feel like it. This is this is what stiff neckedness looks like, you guys. I'm worried about this toy. Pray to God. Ask him to forgive you. And he'll forgive you. You'll have a light burden. You'll have the restoration of his blessing on you. You'll live in the land, in his kingdom, in his paradise, the place that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare for us, for his people. That's where we'll live if we repent. 